It's 2022, which marks 40 years since the release of Madonna's very first single, Everybody, in 1982. Last August, it was announced that her albums would be re-released with new versions curated by Madonna herself. What does that mean? Well, here on Inside the Groove, we're working through each of her albums one by one to tell the story of how they were recorded, written and produced, along with the iconic photography and graphic design. Ray of Light was Madonna's seventh studio album, released on 2nd of March 1998. Produced almost entirely in conjunction with William Orbit, the record is the culmination of a year-long search by Madonna to find the right sound for her career, having taken time out to make Evita and have her first child. It paid off, and many will agree that 15 years into her career, Madonna found the perfect way to reposition herself in the music industry and ensure her legacy. The album reached number one in countries such as Australia, UK, Italy, Germany and Canada, and a respectable number two in territories like US, France and Sweden. Strangely, it reached only number seven in Japan, where it had been released almost two weeks before the rest of the world. In terms of its success, Ray of Light was nominated for a total of six Grammys, of which it won four at the 41st Grammys. It spawned the singles Frozen, Nothing Really Matters, Power of Goodbye, Drown World and of course the title track. As of 2013, it has been certified with 16 million sales and its influence on the pop scene at the end of the 1990s is undeniable. I'll be joined by industry experts to talk about this era and especially the stunning album artwork shot by Mario Testino. As well as Orbit, Madonna worked with other writers on the project including long-term collaborator Patrick Leonard, but it's the tracks co-written with Rick Knowles that I will be focusing on in this episode, including a handful of songs which were ultimately left off the album, and another which would be reworked by Orbit to be one of her best ballads, Power of Goodbye. So for now, sit back, relax. Do you want to go higher inside the groove? What can I say? I think my list of favourite albums changes from day to day and I think Like a Prayer will always have a special place in my heart but this is a close second. Oh, It's just such a great project, the videos, the singles and of course the album itself and I think that for many of you listeners it's also a clear winner. Regardless, it's definitely a point in her career which had a huge impact on how she was perceived. She had a brilliant new look, she had a child, she had a new voice and the music was cutting edge, bringing a pop sound to electronica which had not been quite so mainstream at this point. Most importantly, everyone suddenly took Madonna seriously. For some, it seemed almost like she was fading out. She'd had the big 80s hits and early 90s songs, followed by a selection of ballads, and quite a few people thought that Madonna's new role as a mother would mean her taking a step back from the limelight. 
Instead, we got a luscious string mid-tempo track in the form of Frozen, augmented with avant-garde electronic sounds and supplemented by a cutting-edge video. Then this was quickly followed by a hyper-dance track, which fused heavy metal guitars with a house loop, joined by acidic sequence synthesizers. And that track alone sounded like nothing else before or since. As for me... Well, I turned 28 just after the album was released. I was living in London and working at a music publishing company, and I first listened to the album on holiday in Gran Canaria with a bunch of friends. It was a fantastic trip, and however much I link that stay to a gorgeous dark-haired and olive-skinned Bavarian god called Volta, Ray of Light was the holiday's soundtrack, and that's what sticks in my mind. Madonna was cool. Of course, she was always kind of cool, especially when you think back to the desperately seeking Susan or erotic eras. But this time it was a different kind of cool, because she was cool with the right type of people. The enemy were talking about her. Music producers and DJs were turned on by these new sounds. And everyone realised that not only was she not going away, she was definitely here to stay. I'm joined by Lucy O'Brien, who is the author of the book Like an Icon, all about Madonna. Lucy, this was the ultimate reinvention for Madonna, wasn't it? I kind of believe that had it not happened, we wouldn't still be talking about her today, at least not in the same, not the same sort of way. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking, you know, in terms of age, she was reaching 40 when she was recording it. And, and I think, you know, this is quite pivotal that she was reaching maturity. She'd, she'd had Lola, she'd become a mother and she wasn't becoming stayed. If anything, it, it was actually opening a portal for her. It was like a new, literally a new kind of consciousness where, and it was less about ego. It was less about that old pop ego. She was really exploring a lot of things and and genuinely exploring things on a spiritual level. So she was doing that in her everyday life and then she was doing that musically as well. So she started off writing that album with Pat Leonard, you know, a great, great musical arranger and, and um, you know, together they created some great music on Like a Prayer. But after a while, she got a bit dissatisfied. Thought, well, I don't want to do a sort of Peter Gabriel type record. I want to do, I want to do something more kind of now and experimental and that's how she got together with um, William Orbit and hence that fantastic partnership there that culminated in in songs like the title track you know really ecstatic title track Ray of Light but also this whole album is and I'm sure you know a lot of the listeners to your podcast the reason why it's their favorite and my favorite too is it takes you on this journey and and you feel that She's going to her, through to her own heart of darkness. And I think you can sense that it was almost unexpected for her going through this. You know, at times it seems quite painful self-reflection and thinking through the death of her mother, you know, with that devastating final track, Mare Girl. But, you know, quite rightly, it won all those Grammy Awards because it was it was an artistic statement. But, you know, as I'm talking to you now, you know, and we've talked about erotica, we've talked about Evita, we've talked about bedtime stories, all of those matter because they were all steps to where she got to with Ray of Light. And I, and, and again, you know, I spoke to Marius de Vries about it and he said that, okay, so Evita might seem like a slightly odd step for her to take considering the other albums, but 
her voice, it really helped her develop her voice. So she, it was really strong. It was really, you know, had that drama, that control. So you can see how all this worked to really mm. make Ray of Light what it was. Indeed. Thank you, Lucy. And I will be speaking to you again very soon. Of course, there's so much love about the Ray of Light project. I mentioned the singles and videos, but ultimately the core of it is the music. And that special new sound created when Madonna got together with producer William Orbit. If you've listened to the episode of this podcast, which tells the story of the title track, you'll know that Orbit had been on the periphery of Madonna's work since he remixed Justify My Love at the end of 1990 and had assumed that she was not really aware of him despite his remixes for Erotica and I'll Remember. On the contrary, she was very keen to work with him and through her then A&R representative at Maverick, Guy Osery, she reached out to him in the summer of 1997 when, despite months of writing with Patrick Leonard, Babyface and Rick Knowles there was no cohesion to the sound Madonna needs to bring someone on board who is going to have the futuristic feel that she sought mixed with the trippy beats and eastern influence that's clear on some of those 1997 demos but also bring a focus to the project William took a while to respond by his own admission he's not a very organised person, but eventually sent a dat of some tracks he was working on, which included Candy Perfume Girl and the song Ray of Light. At that point, sung by its creator, British singer Christine Leach. Madonna was ecstatic and invited him to her New York apartment. She opened the door, looked him up and down and said, So, to which he responded, And you shall reap. Now, Orbit did an extensive interview with Q magazine about Ray of Light and the recording process with Madonna. And there's also a few number of press interviews on the subject, but I'm holding back. I'm very keen to do an episode all about the song Frozen. So you'll have to wait until then for the full story. And besides, however central the music is to the album's success, how can we not do a deep dive into its artwork and the singles and the fantastic videos? I'm joined now by industry experts in the form of graphic designer and art director Peter Falloon and fashion photographer Jonathan Daniel Price. Jonathan... Jonathan, if I may come to you first, we spoke about Testina's fashion shoot, which ended up on the cover of Something to Remember. But this time it was a full project specifically shot for Madonna's new album campaign. Tell us everything you know about it. Yes, you're right, Edward. And I feel like this is another example of a perfect partnership between Madonna and photographer. And for me, this is their ultimate body of work. Like you said, she'd worked with Mario Testino for the Something to Remember artwork, which was actually from a series of images they'd shot in Milan for the Versace campaign in 95. And she said around the time that she loved how he made her look and the sort of naturalistic aesthetic that he had. You know, his work tends to be quite bright and clean. It really represented the 90s very well. And there's a soft feeling which is sort of um, like expensive and luxurious which I think comes across so beautifully. Ray of Light obviously marked a definition in Madonna's career. It was her first album after becoming a mother, her influence with Kabbalah, and she was sort of looking back on her career, wondering what else there is to achieve after so much commercial success. So the visuals with Mario really reflect that, that period. It was shot in November 1997 in Miami. And I feel like the photos are sort of mystical and evocative, but there's a positivity there also. You know, Madonna's smiling in a lot of the images. She's laughing in the album artwork and it's playful and youthful. But there's an interesting balance there because even though it feels youthful, it's also quite mature. 
you know, she's got the tan skin and bright eyes, but the styling and Mario's photographic aesthetic makes it feel sophisticated. I think also there are some strong elements of the 90s style there, which are the sort of classic effortlessness of something like a Jill Sander or Prada look at the time, which is captured in the artwork. But looking at the actual artwork itself, uh, they only used one setup from the series of images for the album. It was the blue backdrop, of course. And to me, looking at it, I guess that decision was made because it represents nature, the sky, the sea. And all you have to do is look at the track listing to see the references there in the, in the music itself. The styling's important to mention too, because that blue vinyl coat features so heavily in the artwork. And there's even elements of it where it's just cropped to be the coat itself or the effect the vinyl has. It sort of has a futuristic element, I guess. It looks like the ocean, but like the ocean on another planet. And the color grading of these images are quite warm. You know, it's a warm blue that comes through. And we've got her golden hair and golden skin, which has that hippie Mother Earth feeling in the mix too. I think it's done spectacularly well. There are unedited files that have leaked from the same shoot and they're very similar to the final edit. You know, there's not a huge amount done, but you can see the color is a lot flatter in the first negative. And there has been some skin softening and tweaks to, just to make the images pop. It's funny the details we notice actually, because the cover image, which was used so hugely, not just obviously in the album, but also in the promotion through posters and magazine ads, they do a different retouch on the face. So if you, you can Google it, it's easy to find. The eyes are retouched differently where the iris has been lightened quite a lot on the posters, which weren't done on the album artwork. I'm getting a bit pedantic, but what else are we here for? And as, as we know, also, we've discussed this quite a few times on the podcast so far, when she finds someone that she works well with, she maintains that relationship. So at this point, if we look at Mario Testino as a photographer, a standalone, you know, he's really stepped into his power as a fashion photographer in this time by the late nineties on magazine ads for brands. His name is even printed alongside the brand name. And there's a great clip of Anna Wintour around this time describing Mario as a celebrity in his own right. So you can see why Madonna would also want to work with someone of his stature. There's a great story from the time, which really reflects the two big personalities with strong egos in one room where Mario had said that by 2 PM, Madonna wanted to call it a wrap on the shoot. She was tired but he thought that they didn't have the shot yet. And so there was a bit of a power struggle where she said, you're working for me and I say when it's done, but he insisted on continuing to shoot. And I think Madonna quite likes a strong opinion and a bit of a playful battle with creative people. And M Mario relishes the fact that it was actually uh, a shot taken after that time that ends up getting used as a cover image and he was right all along. So the CD artwork, they used about six or seven images from the shoot inside the artwork. As a child, I poured over this inlay card when I got the album. I, just the lighting, the poses, the expression, it had a huge impact on me. And at 14 years old, Mario Testino was doing a worldwide exhibition of which one of them was showing in Edinburgh. And I asked my dad if we could go along. And I remember seeing the image of Madonna, Ray of Light, huge, alongside those famous images of Princess Diana and other celebrities. And 
And really, like the quality of the work is just astounding. Seeing it so large in person, it's really, really beautiful. The one thing I will say is I've got the vinyl, the original one from the late 90s, which I'd bought secondhand in the 2000s. And I feel like it lacks in artwork. You know, the the CD itself, like I said, has quite a few of the images, even though there's plenty more from that shoot, which we'll discuss later. But the vinyl only has the front and back image and the inlay cards are the one image of Madonna uh, sort of pretending to play the guitar in a silver monochrome print. And even though I love that image, it's probably one of my favorites from the shoot. I feel like there's so much potential for what you can do with the artwork in an album like this. And and yeah, I wonder, it makes me think, we've talked about this a lot too, what they're going to do with the 40th anniversary because there's a lot more to play with. I saw the same exhibition when it came to the National Portrait Gallery in London. And I was blown away by it, mainly for seeing the Madonna stuff up close. and, and mm. Uh, it was astonishing but Testino um, is such a talent and as you've rightly said at that point in the 90s he was the biggest name out there Uh, and there's a famously leaked phone call I don't know if either of you have ever heard it no I'm not sure yes check it out well we'll come to that with the the further listening but the fact that it leaked might be part of the reason why Madonna and Testino never worked together again which is a real shame because these these photos are, j- are just astonishing, and you know, I gr- I agree with everything you say about the photo shoot. I do wonder before we get to the the graphic design, I wonder how contrived things are. Do you think she ever thinks right? I'm going to be new age spiritual Mother Earth, and so I want my skin tanned. I'm going to wear brown clothes um, and earthy tones, and and I'm going to let my hair grow wild and stuff. Or do you think this is the persona that she adopts? You know, not consciously, as it were. What are your thoughts on that, John? My opinion is it's a mixture of both. You know, you and I were talking about the life of a creative person, a life of a self-employed person, and how your work and your life are so intertwined. And I think Madonna is this perfect uh, combination of creative person and business person. So I feel like the likelihood is she's probably just taking natural steps in her life, a natural interest in spiritualism. She becomes a mother, so that makes her reflect a bit more. And also... She's a person in the world. She's seeing what's happening in the world. She's looking at fashion because she loves fashion. She's looking at other creative industries and seeing where the trends are headed. And I can imagine they just perfectly combined. I think yeah. as well, it's the power of a good stylist. So Maripol only reflected back to Madonna what Madonna already was. Mm. So who inspired who? I don't think we could ever be quite sure. Maripol was inspired to give Madonna the props to become more Madonna, but she saw something in her that she wanted to explode and make bigger. And I can imagine that when she was working with the stylist, stylist would have seen Madonna in 1997 and put that long flowing hair. I think she's a muse. So I think she inspires other creative people to project back onto her. Was she already being discussed as a reinventor? in the sort of cynical way that the press sometimes does. Because I remember by the mid-2000s, it was a cynical, oh, here we go, another look, who is she even? But by this point, obviously, it was changing. Was that the case then? I think so. I think for many people, Madonna had gone away. A lot of people sort of closed Madonna off with erotica and bedtime stories a bit. And obviously, she had still been active. We'd had those ballads, we'd had Evita, but she'd reposition herself. And I think many people expected her to come back if she did, with a much more mature sound. So when she came back with this new positioning that was a very modern sound and a a radically different look, I mean, having the tan, I know it's not a real tan, that was such a radical thing. And I just remember a quote that was in the music press at the time, I think it was used in one of these music press adverts, where it said, 
Madonna, how does it feel to be back? And she said, I wasn't aware that I went away, <laughs> which is just uh, quite a typical Madonna thing. So yes, I think, I think, um, people were aware of her always people had talked about her always reinventing herself since like a prayer and she had different hair color but this one time it was a very welcome thing and i don't think anybody was like oh god she's back again what's she doing now i'd like to talk about the graphic design now and it's not just the album because certainly those first two singles the most consistent album single campaign that she's done and this was also felt like the first madonna album you're possibly going to disagree with me here that felt properly designed certainly to my eyes as a, as a, not a professional. What have you got to say to that? I, I'd agree. I think with the exception of Immaculate Collection, which is the greatest hits that's given reverential treatment, this felt coherent and cohesive. Unlike the previous albums, there was almost like a lightness of graphic design. It wasn't overly used. It was just used to punctuate. And it was very on trend with everything else, but the same as the music, it was slightly ahead of its time. So this clean, minimal look, we were doing it in the UK, but very white space. Whereas she allowed this turquoise to come in and, and almost be like the background as much as the image was, this turquoise became synonymous with the entire campaign. It has the same as like a prayer. It's got symbolism and, and real sort of pageantry, but whereas like a prayer was like gilded and like felt heavy and Catholic, this really mirrored her sort of outlook and its etherealness. And it really did convey that sort of lightness and the ray of light and just the really clever graphic design mark of the three rays. It's just enough to lift what was quite basic graphics into an album cover. There's only really three graphics in it. There's the arc of the circle, the starburst, and then the little three rays. And as a graphic designer, being able to boil down the concept of an album into something so minimalistic, but in, in the late nineties, we were obsessed with minimalism and it just, it's a really, really beautiful example of great nineties graphic design, but it stands out from the rest because it's not white and it's not clean and there is a concept there. So for me, it was one of the ones that I, I same as Jonathan, really thoroughly enjoyed looking at and pouring over because each page was designed. It wasn't a, a block of type and an image. The two would come together. So the starburst was present either as an overlay or as a, an icon. And it just, it just had really beautiful little touches. So we were sort of back to what Jerry Hyden had done, but it was now in like a different guy's hands. So it's a, a bloke called Kevin Regan. And I think based on like what I can learn about, he was actually brought into Maverick. So I think this was very much an in-house concept and design. And she was able to work with somebody in-house of her own label, which probably was a first. And he did a lot of other ones that were also on the same label. So he did the Alanis Morissette album, Michelle D'Angelo. So there was obviously like a, col a collaborative Maverick graphic design. And he, he did the next three albums. So there was obviously like a, a, a really positive relationship there. 
It's really interesting because at the time I was working in the music industry for an indie label or an indie group of companies. And one of the albums that was produced was The Prodigy, Fat of the Land, which of course, not only a huge um, electronica album, probably, I mean, a lot of people want to say that Ray of Light is the first very popular electronica album. I think Prodigy probably was, or maybe something yeah. before then. Anyway, I got to see the designer creating that artwork and, and that was fascinating to watch. A lot of it was done on desktop publishing, but a lot of it was done by him photocopying stuff scrunching up and photocopying it again and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And it ended up on Maverick. And of course, she signed the Prodigy to, to Maverick. The whole Madonna ethic of bringing in marketing into the music as well was, was suddenly being exploited elsewhere. And of course, Ray of Light does it so perfectly. To me, this is Madonna going, yeah, I've already been doing this. I'm going to do it again. I'm going to show you why it's been important. Yeah. Within Maverick, she basically was able to put her vision into practice and cut out the middleman. So there wasn't anyone really saying no anymore. So that disjointedness was sort of eradicated. My, my only beef is I think Frozen and Ray of Light are the wrong way around. So <laughs> Frozen is a very yellow, warm image and Ray mm -hmm. of Light is a, a green, blue, cold image. I would rather have swapped those two round, but that's being really pedantic. It's a good point, isn't it? I think it was probably chosen that way to reflect the, the album title, but it, it, yeah, it's a really good point. And of course the single artwork for Frozen doesn't reflect the video at all. I mean, let's talk about those, certainly those first two singles and yeah, let's come to you first, Jonathan, because there are so many unseen pictures and I'm sure you're going to tell people to check them out, but that whole gold look that she's wearing on the Frozen cover, there's a lot of shots like that, isn't there? Yes, they did about maybe seven setups for this with a backdrop and the only way I can think to reference them if people wanted to look them up are by what she's wearing. So the one that we know is the blue PVC coat. She's got one with grey transparent plastic dress with nothing underneath it. This canary yellow dress, the gold silk dress, which is the one used in this single, and then a sheepskin sequin coat with the long, long hair. Very hippie vibes. And so this gold setup, I've always thought that too, Peter, that it, it, it sort of matches Ray of Light as a song more than the Ray of Light cover. My only thinking in my own mind, as I imagined why, is because they were released very close together. They wanted something that looked very different to the album. Yeah. Maybe that. Yeah. But, um, but I mean, she looks beautiful in these shots. And this is like Tan Donna, as you said, Edward. <laughs> this is like her at her most golden which of course we see in the music video too. <laughs> and I mean, it's not a huge amount to say because this is very much this Maritistino aesthetic, which I've described sort of luxurious, but you've got the wind machine. So the hair is moving and yeah, very of the time and of the music too. I can remember Madonna being interviewed on Radio 1 at the time of release of the album, I think. So before the sing Ray of Light single came out and it was Zoe Ball and she said to Madonna, you got the singles the wrong way round. It should have been Ray of Light first. And Madonna was completely stumped. She didn't know how to say, how to answer this. Probably one, because somebody was disagreeing with her choices, but also because, I mean, we can't say that it was right because Frozen was enormously successful. It went to number one. Um, and Ray of Light was such a departure from anything. I can honestly, honestly say, and I've been able to do this throughout this podcast, that nothing ever sounded like Ray of Light before the single. It sounded so mm -hmm. unlike anything else because it's not just a house song with electric guitars. It's, it's like a really heavy metal and a really techno song going on at the same time with this incredible vocal, which is, sounds more like Kate Bush than, than Madonna. It really is the, one of the most original songs. Uh, I've ever heard and it's never been surpassed. I've never heard anything. I thought, oh, that sounds like Madonna's Ray of Light. I can really understand why someone would think Ray of Light would be the lead song. You know, it's such a banger. But what always surprises me is that 
it didn't go to number one in the UK. You know, it's mm. such an epitome of Madonna. You know, it's like in her standard classics now. And I think Frozen did get to number one though, right? I remember actually being a child and watching a Madonna performing Frozen on the National Lottery. And at that point, my sort of uh, memories of who she was weren't fully connected. So I didn't know it was this woman who had done this Bedtime Stories album that was in my sister's room. It was sort of still disconnected in my mind. Let's talk about the other single designs. Obviously, the next one we've got is Drown World, which uses the Rankin photo shoot. Hmm. Not one of her best single covers, is it, Peter? Um, it, it didn't really work. It was very 90s, but it was very 90s magazine. And the trouble is that magazine design moves fast and it's trend related and it's, it's, it's quick turnaround. So to sort of see that thing turn into a single cover, it like the crop and the, it, it was such a nineties thing to, to cut an image in half. It, we thought we were really clever. Everything was about <laughs> composition and edginess. <laughs> and I can look back now and sort of see that we were a bit in love with our, our own what do we strip out? What do we take out? And so you've got some really weird things like you, you would get designers deliberately cropping beautiful photographs to make a graphic design point. It's a bit try hard, but yeah. Absolutely. I mean, that ranking shoot, I think Jonathan also, I don't know how much you know about it, but I think it's also from 1997, around a similar time as the album cover. What can you tell us about that? So it's the first time that Rankin shoots Madonna and you're right, it was December 97 they shot. It was originally for Q magazine and I love the idea that this very English photographer is shooting her at a time when she's spending more and more time in London. But despite this, it's actually shot in LA. He talked about the shoot in an interview a few years ago and I think it's worth me reading the full quote. He says, this was a really exciting one. I remember I was in Paris and I needed to get a motorbike taxi to the airport to fly to LA to shoot it. Madonna was on time. She came in and told me, I chose you to photograph me because you make the people in your photographs look like they're having a laugh, which made me nervous because I felt like I had to be a stand-up comedian. I was more nervous meeting her than I was meeting the queen. I'd heard lots of things about her being quite tough, but I think it's a testament to her that it's her collaborators, stylists, makeup artists, producers, who are always her biggest allies. And of course, that's exactly what we've been talking about. And I like the photo chosen for the single artwork, but generally when you look at the full range of images, they're probably my least favorite from this time period. I feel like they're very flat, very stark. And Rankin at the time is really into shooting with a ring flash which is a circular flash that sits over the lens and it produces this completely even light on the subject that works brilliantly in some contexts, but I think it doesn't reflect the song here. The song's about self-discovery and battling inner demons and coming to terms with who you are, who you want to be. It's a dreamy song. And I think there are other photos in the time that reflect that better than this one. I've been fortunate enough to be on two ranking photo shoots and, and watch him in practice. And I can imagine it was indeed a great vibe, especially when you've got a personality as big as Madonna there. Yeah. And it's fascinating to watch these very accomplished photographers at work. Uh, and these photos are phenomenal. Let's move on to Power Goodbye. This was a shot done for Spin Magazine, I think, Jonathan. Mm. Yeah, that's right. So it's Inez and Vinod that shot it for Spin, which obviously then later became the single artwork. And these are photographers, a photographer duo who's mainly known in fashion. They still work today doing very high profile work. You know, for example, they directed the Lady Gaga applause music video, just to give some context. So here, I mean, I love this photo with the double exposure. It kind of has this witchy energy, which I think the song evokes also and reminds me 
of that kind of Victorian obsession with fairies and magic, which were was ignited even more with the birth of photography, which is quite unlike the Mario photos, actually, because this work is quite cold and dark. You know, I just want to take a moment to really take in how different the media landscape was then. You know, if you think the reach of a magazine, spin magazine, the budget that was available, you know, I entered the photography world when budgets were getting cut, but I, in the early days, assisted on some big jobs. And, you know, you'd get these situations where you'd get a 10 day shoot in the Bahamas for a two page story. You know, it just doesn't happen like that today. And I feel like with this shoot, you know, you've got a new story for spin, which ends up getting used to the magazine. And you've got Laurie Goldstein, who's styling, and then Ariane Phillips, who's the on-set stylist. You know, these are two mammoth, massive career stylists, both on one shoot. And I mean, they work with Madonna a lot over the years, but it's just so indicative of the time period, the amount that's able to spend on it. And even Madonna, being as famous as she is now, doesn't have that much to play with. She often talks about budgets and stuff in interviews. So there are lots of brilliant photos from this photo shoot from Spin to look at if people wanted to Google it. This one almost looks like a Tudor portrait. You know, there's quite classic framing in one of the shots. She's got this square neckline dress and, you know, it's quite uh, harking back to the past. There's a sort of arts and crafts period, England looking the romantic medieval folk style with her pleated hair and ruffled necklace. And I think that goes hand in hand with the Ray of Light era, particularly as she travels through 1998. You know, from the earlier shots shot at the end of 97 towards 98, she does move towards the more hippie spiritual side of things, which I think probably reflected her real life as well. There's one story from this shoot, which was the photographer saying that for every outfit they proposed, Madonna would show it to Lourdes on shoot and Lourdes said no to every single one. And she explained it was just because that was her age. And I think Madonna also references this in maybe in the Oprah interview from 98, where Lourdes is in a period of no. <laughs> well, somebody definitely should have said no to that typeface though, Peter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Awful. It's gone back <laughs> to the script of erotica and the typeface that they use for the um, credits. It's one of those awful fonts that's been used in like the wrong hands. So there's, there's a rule that there are display fonts and there are text fonts and you never use a display font for small information. Some fool has put all of the tiny copy. It's just, it, everything about it is an assault, but, <laughs> but it's, it's a beautiful image. I think that something that I do love about that moment, it, it was the video. Again, we had all of the filmic references and I love it when a director has Madonna and finds something that we've not seen before and very much with power of goodbye, there is a calmness and a beauty that we've never seen. She's almost like the softest that I'd ever seen her and the most feminine, but then pulling in like all of the Thomas Crown Affair reference from the chess scene and the um, humor-esque with Joan Crawford, just walking off into the sea at the end. I remember reading at the time that Madonna actually, <laughs> you can't believe it now, but actually went back to the director and said, I I'm too beautiful. It's not <laughs> believable that... And she had I, do, I do that all the time. <laughs> I do. <laughs> What's interesting is when we get to the final single from the campaign, where more than any other time, I think, in her career, Madonna had a very definite and definitive look for the single, for the video, which isn't reflected on the single artwork. Um, should we talk about that, that photography? Again, it's a magazine shoot for Nothing Really Matters. Yes. So nothing really matters. We take a, another sidestep. It's a bit of a weird shoot overall when you see the full story. You know, Madonna looks completely different again. 
It was shot for Arena magazine for the January 99 issue. And the image that's used on the single is a bit of a tromploy. It looks like she might be at the edge of a skyscraper, but in fact, it's a bed in a hotel room. And uh, the crop of the image, particularly on the single, makes it look like that. It's hard to understand what's going on. But when you see the wide, it's a lot more clear. Uh, I think it's got to do with the sort of projection of the image behind. That's either an image that's lit or a projected image, but it definitely makes it look like it's shot outside. And I love photos like this for the sort of transformative element. It's quite abstract. And the photographer, who is Luis Sanchez, he, he's known for this type of photography especially the use of light. And in the CD single, the inlay card has another shot from this magazine story, which I also love. It's Madonna doing her yoga handstand sort of midair in the hotel. You know, it's a bit blurry. It looks cross-processed, so very high contrast. And I just feel like it reflects the time beautifully too, because it's sort of not trying to be well, in a way, I feel like it's not trying to be cool. It's just it's just caught in a moment, in a period. And I do have quite a lot of nostalgia for the late 90s. I feel like it was quite a cool time, like Peter, you were saying about the minimalism in graphic design and the sort of reckoning of what the next millennium is going to look like. Peter, you must be really frustrated that the geisha look that she had in the video didn't appear on the single. Yeah, she released it recently in 4K. And my God, that is a beautiful video. There's things that I see in that video now that I didn't know were filmed, like the texture and the richness of it. She actually has red eyebrows, which on the video, well, on 4.3, you were never going to see. But yeah, I, the, the look that she had was so strong. And it was a shame that it didn't migrate in, into the visuals. But the other thing that I think she did so well was, and it's a bit like Inception, we talked about it earlier, but she had a reinvention within a reinvention. Like 1999, We'd come off the back of what seemed like quite balladry towards the end of the campaign. This song came out of nowhere and it was such a huge hit and she had another wave. It was, she was on every TV show. It was on every performance. She was, she was back again. And then that paired with Beautiful Stranger, she had another moment. And I think it, Nothing Really Matters is sort of, it, it's not high in her back catalogue, but it owned the world. The people who love dance music that I went to uni with, this was the one that got them into Ray of Light at the end of the campaign. She did really well to sort of come back with another fresh reinvention just for one single. But I think now we might start hearing cultural appropriation, which it was on the tail end of, she'd done it a few times up until now, but I think it's the last time that she appropriates something that she didn't have the right to. I think it's beautiful, but I now can see it through 2020 eyes. And I know that there are bits of it that are wrong. So it's very hard to criticize because it came from a good place. She, she saw the similarities between her fate and that of a geisha and that she has to dress up and paint herself to suit the, the, the men in the room. I remember watching CD UK and Kat Dealey asking a guest about what they thought of the, the jerky dancing. Very of the time. Well, I remember Live and Kicking, I think it was, and Cher was the guest and they were doing their, uh, the showing of the video and... Cher was just mesmerized by it and and she said I can't remember exactly what she said but she said wow that's astonishing because it, it really did and when you look at it now I watched the video on the weekend actually you're quite right Peter you see things you didn't see before like the grain moving oh uh, yeah and, and stuff like that that effect that bullet time effect which people will know from movies such as it was the, the Matrix. Matrix yeah same yeah Matrix which had a, was you know very late 90s and stuff like that it's actually quite subtle it's only used about three or four times where we follow Madonna's hand as she moves and, and it moves around it. Yeah, it's the whole less is more ethic. I had that DVD collection 
of the music videos and a lot of them I hadn't seen because I didn't have MTV and I watched Nothing Really Matters about 10,000 times. I couldn't believe it when I saw it because I had never seen it before that time. And it's with a director that she's never worked with before or since, which I'm intrigued by. Again, maybe they hated each other, but it, they created <laughs> something. Fun. What I love about this period of promotion is, as we always talk about, the consistency of aesthetics. So you know, she's on Larry King, she does Johnny Vaughn, she's on the Grammys, and she's all of them. She's got this sleek, dark, dark, dark brown cut, very, very sharp cut bob, you know, and the leather jackets and, and all that stuff. Absolutely. So to summarize the Ray of Light period, and uh, Jonathan, I've asked you to reference stuff all the way through, but uh, the further reading that you'd like people to go away and do their homework on for the Ray of Light period, what would that be? Well, I have mentioned a couple shoots, as you said, to look up, but one that stands out for me in particular is the David LaChapelle shoot for Rolling Stone. It was shot in May 98 and published in July 98. I mean, David LaChapelle is, is known for these elaborate sets and big concepts, working with huge celebrities, making larger than life, powerful sort of a aesthetics with a kind of American dream that's also a bit ironic, I guess, as Madonna would say. So I think it fits perfectly with who Madonna is. And the photos that they created are kind of hyper real. They remind me a bit of the kitschness of Pierre Agila, you know, with, with candy colors and stark lighting, using mythical Hindu goddesses as a setup and dragons and swans. I mean, the colors are amazing. The magenta and her, her long, long golden wavy hair. There's one other setup within this shoot, which is a kind of New York City, Brooklyn style street scene with a ghetto blaster and a fire hydrant spraying everywhere, which I, I love. So that's definitely worth looking up. And there's a, there's a funny story from this too. We're talking about sort of creative collaborations and, and keeping relationships going because this is the only shoot that they ever worked on together. And it's because they fell out. So apparently he was on the, you know, lineup to shoot and direct the hung up music video. And in the pre-production stages, as they're sort of planning things over, they have an argument and the story goes that he actually did hang up on her talking about hung up in the oh, well, There we go. Yeah. More the fool him. I remember um, seeing an exhibition of David LaChapelle Prince, probably 2000 and it's very Pierre Gilles. And I think Madonna fans will know that um, picture most famously for the DVD collection, the video collection that came out at the end of 99 or beginning of 2000. Uh, Peter, any further reading, listening? Mine's definitely a watching one, not because it is, Ray of Light is so minimal, there's not much graphic design to look at, but I would say the rushes were released for Ray of Light, the video, so you can watch those in real time. And something that I didn't know until I watched it and can now fully appreciate, I've read she um, had an issue with Jonas Ackland who directed the video because it was more complicated to translate to him that she didn't want to dance anymore than it was to just dance. But I didn't realize that the one that I thought was sped up where she's dancing manically, that's real. Mm -hmm. So it's only sped up ever so slightly in the final video. Jonas asked her to dance like that. So it would seamlessly match with the time-lapse. So you can actually see her really giving it her all and she's knackered, but she <laughs> keeps going. And it was, it's because it was easier just to keep going than to argue with him because she could, she literally could not translate her anger in his language. So <laughs> I, I love that. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jonathan. I'll have you back soon to talk about the album music. Putting to one side for now the involvement of Patrick Leonard and William Orbit on Ray of Light, session started in March 1997 after a chance meeting. 
Three songs on Ray of Light were co-written with writer and producer Rick Knowles. In actual fact, they recorded nine songs together, although only The Power of Goodbye, To Have a Not To Hold and Little Star would make it to the final release, a triumvirate sequence towards the end of the LP. Knowles had been in Manhattan for the 29th Grammy Awards, which were held on the 26th of February at Madison Square Gardens, when he bumped into Madonna a few days earlier at Barney's department store. According to an interview with Rolling Stone, Knowles said... I told her I was nominated for a Grammy for Celine Dion's Falling Into You. Much to his surprise, she replied, Oh, I love that song. And this led to their meeting at her home, where, according to Rick, she had no idea what the new album was going to be. Eventually, they paired up at Knowles's Mulholland Drive home studio and they wrote nine songs in ten days. He says, Until then, I had only written with friends Ellen Shipley, Billy Steinberg and Stevie Nicks. It was quite unnerving to write one-to-one with the biggest star on the planet, but I loved her songs and felt an emotional kinship with her music. I got a load of DJ records and old-school film scores and, and prepared loops to write to. Once the song was written, we dropped the loop and programmed our own beat. Little Star and The Power of Goodbye were written to a drum and bass rhythm, which was happening at the time. To Have a Not to Hold was written to a bossa nova beat. The remaining songs were never released by Madonna. A track called Alone Again was ultimately given to Kylie, who used it in a tour film, White Diamonds, but some of them will sound familiar to you, including this song, No Substitute for Love. The song, of course, I'm sure you'll realise, became Drowned World slash Substitute for Love, radically reworked by Orbit. It would lose the Knowles credit, presumably as his input was not used, and ultimately Madonna would find a new top-line melody and rework her lyrics slightly. William Orbit had created a song called Found World, and it seemed that Madonna's new melody and lyrics would work on top of that. This is what Found World sounded like before Madonna came along. Let's hope the upcoming reissue of Ray of Light includes some of those unused tracks. Here's another one which I know a lot of Madonna fans enjoy, Like a Flower.
It was later given to Italian singer Laura Pausini for her 2004 album Resta in Associato, that's Italian for Remain Listening, and retitled Mi Abandono a Te, and I apologise to all our Italian listeners for my terrible pronunciation. But the most interesting demo from these sessions is The Power of Goodbye. Still recognisable in its original form, it's the one that would benefit so much from Orbit's production. There's no leaked multi-track of Orbit's version, but we have got the vocals to hear. So let me just play a little bit of Madonna's raw vocal to power of goodbye. Your heart is not open, so I must go. The spell has been broken, I loved you so. Freedom comes when you learn to let go Creation comes when you learn to say no And of course the beautiful, beautiful chorus There's nothing left to try There's no place left to hide There's no greater power than the power of Outstanding. It's so, so beautiful to hear, even with all that reverb on. So there's much more to talk about on the Ray of Light album, but I'm saving it up. What will be on the reissues? Well, it's over six months now since it was announced that there was some sort of repackaging reissue curated by Madonna coming of all of her work, but we've heard nothing since. It's been hinted at that there's a 50 hits remixes or whatever you want to call it package coming as well, but nothing there. Although that might be down to the long lead times of vinyl production. And of course, Madonna has also been hinting about remixes of the Ray of Light track Frozen. You'll be aware that the Sick Kick remix of that song has done great streaming numbers. And there's a lot more to tell about that song and the other ones written by Patrick Leonard, which were then reworked for the Ray of Light album. I'm saving that all up for an episode when Madonna drops her new versions, whenever that is. Uh, In the meantime, you're going to have to wait and we're going to carry on with the album by album review. The next episode, of course, will be the 2000 album Music. And I can't wait, can't wait to talk to you about that one. In the meantime, I'm off to L.A., uh, hopefully to win a Queerty Award. I really don't think I'm going to, but, you know, it's great to have been invited to the red carpet event. And I'm going to meet a bunch of Madonna fans as well while I'm out there. It's very, very exciting. If you want to support this podcast, I mean, it's the financial support that keeps me going, then you can become a patron at insidethegroove.co.uk. Follow the links and you will get episodes in advance if you become a patron. There's also merchandise all on the website as well. Please go and have a look. In the meantime, well, thank you for listening. Stay safe and I'll be back for a bit of mere waste very soon. (laughs) 